Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Jonathan DeBarca Butler joins us once again, as he always done on, uh, on a Tuesday. To, to bring us some stories from other parts of the world. Jonathan, good Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right, Belgium. Uh, we're going to go to uh, first. This is, a, this is a court case that a woman has taken against the state. Yes, it's five women in total who have taken um, a case against the state of Belgium. Um, five mixed-race women who were born in the Congo when the Congo was under Belgian rule, right? So, cut a long story short, Belgium effectively ran uh, the Congo from 1885 to 1960, okay, when it Mm. got its independence. And these women were, all five of them were born between 1945 and 1950. And they were mixed race because in all five cases, the mother was black and from the Congo and the father was white and from Belgium, which was something of a no-no at the time, as you can imagine. So much like unwanted children were dealt with here in Ireland during that period, they did the exact same in the Belgian Congo at the time. They took them off to orphanages or, uh, you know, institutions that were run by the Catholic Church and they kind of hid them away. So, A, they wouldn't be an embarrassment to the some 90,000, you know, Belgian people that were working there. Uh, and also their their philosophy, their theory was that these mixed race children would be so confused they'd, they'd become, they'd be easy to re- recruit for rebellion, all right, which is something that the Belgians had to deal with apparently in the Congo, which is hardly unsurprising because they treated the local people so badly for the period that they were there. So anyway, these uh, mixed race women were, were taken off and they were kept in these institutions within the Congo itself, right? They weren't necessarily brought to, to Belgium, but through the jigs and the reels and, and over time, they eventually ended up there. Now, some of them live in Belgium, some of them live in France, and they are now taking a case against the Belgian government. They're looking for uh, compensation of 50,000 each for starters. They want access to archives. Again, it begins to sound a little bit familiar. And yeah, they're looking, is, yeah, yeah. And, they're, and they're looking for an independent expert to evaluate the damages. So the 50,000 that they're looking for is just the upfront, but mm. they want more. More than anything, more than the money, because, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily look as if they need it. They want the cases to be brought forward and and they want people to see how they were dealt with during their lifetime Mm. and how badly they were treated. Um, So that's what's at the crux of this. Um, The Belgian authorities are defending it and uh, the lawyer for the Belgian state are basically saying that if there is a supposed fault of the state, it must be taken up within five years of the supposed fault of the state happening. An absolutely ridiculous defence, but that's what they're sticking with. It looks like they're going to put up some sort of a fight because I suppose they're worried that the floodgates will open. There are 15,000 people like this. This is a thin edge for a massive class action suit. Absolutely, exactly. And their defence is that they should have taken it within five years of 1950 when they were children. (laughs) Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Good luck with that. And when the whole country of Congo was going through unbelievable turmoil. I mean, you can imagine what this was like when the Congo actually got independence and how mm. those mixed race people were treated then you know they were caught in between as well you yeah. know so so they were treated badly right throughout their lives 
um, before and, they were able to go on and, and, and lead their own. And has the Belgian state offered, you know, uh, uh, uttered any remorse about this over yeah, the years? Yeah, well, well, this is the thing. The timing of this is quite interesting because there was an apology that was issued by the then Prime Minister Charles uh, Charles Michel. He'd be well known because he's now the president of the European EU Council. Um, so he issued an apology, and then last year, I think the Belgian King expressed regret for what had happened. And of course, you know, his ancestor had a, had a big part to play in, in an awful lot of the shenanigans that went on, particularly in the early part of the 20th century there right okay that, that should be an interesting one to keep an mm. eye on uh, right Cameroon we're going to go to uh, next rather grim story uh, a policeman gets lynched yeah a policeman gets lynched um, this is an ongoing story something that we've been covering since it started you know on and off for the mm. last four years um, that was October the 1st 2017 when the Ambazonia declared its independence this is the English speaking part of Cameroon that wants to well some of them do want to break away from the the majority French speaking part of the country, right? And and there's been a lot going on in Cameroon. I could give you stories every week about it, to be honest with you. But this is particularly grim. This happened when a woman was driving children to school and was ordered by a policeman to stop at a checkpoint. She refused to stop, apparently, or refused to stop in the manner that he wanted at least and he for some bizarre reason opened fire on the car killed a schoolgirl, and subsequently was attacked by a mob it was a very it's a very busy city there's about 300,000 town there's about 300,000 people in it he was subsequently attacked and he was lynched um, so the amount of tension that is around in this particular town Buwe which is right in the heart of this particular district uh, is is quite something else and, and it could have easily got out of control uh, even further to be honest with you Right okay so we'll take some time for things to calm down then Well it does absolutely because it's an ongoing conflict I mean last month alone there was 15 soldiers killed in two attacks by separatists Um, Mm. I think seven people or or a number of people have been sentenced to death for their role in the killing of some school children that was on the separatist side so there's a lot going on and there's no sign of peace talks really at the moment either Mm. Um, and any time I look at it it seems to be more and more conflict more and more killing and and there's over 3,500 people who've died in those four years so it's very much underreported. Right, uh, Chile, we're going to go to your next uh, presidential impeachment proceedings. Yes, uh, Sebastian Piñera, who is in currently in his second term in there in, in Chile, um, he is a multi-billionaire. He's apparently worth about $2.5 billion. And as I said, this is his second term. Now, this comes off the back of the release of the Pandora Papers investigation. And they're saying that there's evidence to suggest that an instalment that he paid, right, for a, a mining deal that he was involved with while he was president for the first time, had a clause that required the government not to strengthen environmental protections in the proposed area of the mine. Mm. So obviously, you know, he sold his stake in this particular Dominga project, as it's known, and part of the, the clause in the third instalment while he was president was just, you know, piped down there on the, the, the environmental issues. So it doesn't look good for him at all. He's under intense pressure. Um, there are elections coming up in November. And, uh, you know, it, people aren't particularly happy with him on, on this particular term uh, that he's had. Um, so he'll be in trouble there, I think. Uh, right. Uh, the US, uh, we're going to go to you next. Uh, and this is, uh, unfortunately, another grim story. Uh, a man charged with manslaughter of his girlfriend... Um, now, but actually it was the child that pulled the trigger literally. it was yeah yeah this happened in August of this year um 
A two-year-old uh, is the son of this man who's been arrested and charged over the, the shooting beyond Avery. Uh, his two-year-old child uh, found a gun in a backpack and while his mum was on a Zoom call with um, her colleague, uh, the child took out the gun and pulled the trigger and shot her dead. Um, mm. The accident was called in by the other person who was on the call, but by the time paramedics got there, uh, she was she was already dead. So what's interesting about this is that the 22-year-old man who owned the gun, who wasn't in the house at the time, mm. he's been charged with manslaughter. And the reason for that is because the charges say that he he didn't put the gun away in a you know safe fashion and yeah. ultimately he's responsible for it um it's a, it's a strange one because ultimately it goes back to gun laws you know that's the root of it really uh, but yeah it, it, are there laws in florida where you're required to keep your gun in, in a secure location well i would imagine so and that's exactly you know the, that's exactly where the case is going to be brought Other, otherwise it's just an accident really isn't it and, yeah. and and the whole thing will fall apart so he faces up to 15 years in prison um, there's another possibility that he could get 15 years of probation and a very large fine well $10,000 uh, but in the middle of it all is this two year old child and uh, another child apparently who's they're both currently being looked after by, uh, by relations so uh, it's a very sad story a uh, very sad story you can't help but think at what point do you tell a child? Yeah. Well, actually, you shot your mother dead. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or do you at all? I or, mean, it's, well, it's, I mean, you know, Google, unless they ban yeah, Google, true. you know, the, the, the poor child's going to find out one way or the other, unfortunately. Right, another even more bizarre story. Uh, we're going to go to Iran now, uh, and this is on, on foot uh, of a court case and how justice is sometimes meted out there. Yeah, it's it's a story about a 40-year-old man from Tehran who was blinded by his neighbour during a fight in 2018. Now, the fight involved knives and the perpetrator insists that he did not intend to blind his neighbour when he attacked him with the knife. It just happened. But the victim in this case has basically decided that he wants retribution and he's entitled to it, apparently. Uh, Under the eye for an eye retribution law, which is literally what it's called. That's literally what it's called. Yeah, yeah. He he can ask to take the other man's eye or eyes out. Uh, and that's what he—that's what he's decided to do. Now, the perpetrator or the convict in this case—I mean, it's been decided that he—he he certainly did it. So he's been, you know, charged with it and he's been convicted. Uh, but he has twenty days to appeal the verdict uh, under Iranian law. And what that means basically is you're not appealing to the judge or a jury or anything like that. You're appealing to the victim or the family of the victim who can ask for either compensation or can just wave it away. Um, it's something that actually hasn't been used very often before. Since 1979, there's only apparently been two blindings on record uh, that have been used, uh, you know, as punishment, uh, you know, as capital punishment. Um, so it's not something that's actually very common. Mm. Uh, but it, it, it could be happening to this this particular guy uh, fairly soon, if, if unless the, the victim changes his mind. And are there any details about how such an action would be carried out? I mean, is is he just goes around to his house with a knife? Is it done under, I, under medical okay. supervision? So, or, or so I'll, I'll, because you asked, I'll go into the details, yeah. right? So, so yes, it's done under medical supervision. But part of the problem is problem if you look at it that way is they can't actually find doctors who perform it. Yeah. So like, what doctor in the world is going to go? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'll guide another fellow's eyes out, no problem. Uh, so they they can't find it, and most cases the victims do turn around and they say, look, I'll take the, the compensation. There was one ruling, we have a little bit of time, I think, so there was one ruling in where a woman who was attacked with acid in 2004 yeah. 
uh, she was given the opportunity of actually dropping the acid into the perpetrator's eye. She was going to do it and at the last minute she decided not to and uh, took the money instead. Crikey. Right, uh, Serbia will go to uh, next and uh, a hostile owner there is forced to shut down. Yes, uh, this is a man by the name of Sinisa Sevo and he's been labelled a traitor by right-wing extremists uh, who don't like him in this particular town. The town is called Sombor, right? It has a population of about 80,000 people. It also has a famous stew festival, by the way. <laughs> and it's on the border with uh, Croatia and Hungary, right? As a result, it's obviously a very popular place for refugees who are on their way to the European Union, right? So they're stopping off here essentially from Afghanistan and Syria. Um, but there isn't enough space to house them, okay? So there are 20 uh, direct provision centres, let's just call yeah. them that, right, yeah. in, in Serbia, right? And one of them is in this particular place. But there are too many people and not enough beds. So what's happening is that private hostels are offering their beds for these refugees. The state has come in. It's, so it's, Part of it is that the, he, he's closing down because of intimidation, but it's actually because the state are saying that what he's doing is illegal, in order for it to be illegal for a refugee to take up private hostel accommodation, they have to sign up for refugee status in Serbia. Yeah. And most of these people aren't going to do that because if they do that, they're stuck there and they can't move on to Hungary, Croatia, Germany, Austria right. and all okay. these other countries. Yeah. So they're they're caught in a bind. This guy's trying to, you know, do the right thing, I suppose. He's probably getting money from the state as well, yeah. I would imagine. But because these refugees aren't willing to sign up, uh, he has to close down, and so the, these these you know these people who are threatening him, these right wing uh, activists who are a member of a, of, a, of a group called the People's Patrol, sounds a bit like Paw Patrol. Oh God. Um, uh, have been intimidating and they have kind of won I suppose yeah. in, uh, in this instance but uh, we'll, we'll see how it pans out yeah okay uh, that, well, right that's all our time very briefly Jonathan what should we look out for in the next few days yeah so uh, tomorrow it's 10 years since Gaddafi would you believe he's mm. gone 10 years there's elections in Uzbekistan on Sunday which are probably a foregone conclusion and then it's in two weeks uh, but there will be uh, New York mayoral elections coming up uh, so they, that could be pretty interesting to look at the coverage yeah. around that over the next two weeks yes indeed Jonathan thanks Thanks a million. As ever, Jonathan DeBurka Butler, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on Newstalk. We're going to take a break after that. Teaching languages in national school. Moncrief on Newstalk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.